Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by our lead pastor, Dave Ferguson, and guest speaker, Dominique Gilliard, as we continue our series, Conversations. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Welcome to Conversations. This summer at Community, we're going to spend three weekends exploring some tough topics. Racism, mass incarceration, and mental health. Today, you're going to chance to hear from one of the foremost thought leaders on a topic that can be polarizing in our current culture. Our goal with today's big idea is to model how to have a conversation about this topic by hearing our expert story and looking to the Bible as our truth source. It's our hope that this conversation will inspire all of us to seek to understand the many facets of this tough topic so we can draw closer to God and seek ways to help others find their way back to Him. So with that in mind, let's begin the conversation. Dominique Gilliard is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church. He also serves on the Board of Directors for the Christian Community Development Association and Evangelicals for Justice. In 2015, he was named one of the Black Christian Leaders Changing the World by the Huffington Post. Dominique is the author of Rethinking Incarceration, advocating for justice that restores. He addresses many shortcomings within the United States justice system and encourages Christians to pursue reforms that emphasize reconciliation rather than punishment. His book won the 2018 Book of the Year Award for InterVarsity Press. Dominique, it's good to have you here. Um, this is our second of three uh, conversations that we're having in our conversation series this summer. We just had uh, Daniel Hill here to talk to us about race and racism, and that was awesome. Um, but we're also glad to have you here to talk about mass incarceration, uh, equally tough topic. Now, you've written this book that's getting a lot of rave reviews, and our team is enjoying this rethinking incarceration, so thank you so much for that. And you have a spectacular title. What is it? It's Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation. I'm just a lead pastor. <laughs> I, need, I need a new title. Maybe a good place for us to start is just, okay, they call it mass incarceration ruin because the statistics, I mean, there's a massive number. So tell us some of those things, and then also give us kind of where this plays a role uh, historically, too, and how we got here. Yeah, when we think about the present-day realities, um, right now we live in a nation where there are more prisons, jails, and detention centers than there are degree-granting institutions, which means there are literally more places where you can get locked up than you can get a college education. Uh, we represent 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Wow. That means we presently have more people locked up in this country than any country in the history of the world. We're taught in this country that people are innocent until proven guilty, but the reality is that 75% of people in U.S. jails today are there because not because they've been convicted of a crime, but because they're too poor to afford their bail. When I read that, that blew me away. I, I had no idea. Yeah. It's one of the things that really kind of undergirds our system right now because most people are incentivized into copying plea bargains instead of actually going to trial because when they go to trial, they're faced with such punitive sentencing like 90 years to life or 25 years to life is a more common one. But people who are impoverished who know that they don't have the means to actually find a lawyer who's going to be able to defend them in a way that some Someone who has means would, they are 
you know, pressured into taking these plea bargains. So Brian Stevenson says in his book, Just Mercy, that we have a criminal justice system that works better for you if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. And this has historical roots, too. Oh, yeah. And so one of the common mistakes made in this conversation is when we talk about mass incarceration, people like to start in 1971 with the launch of the war on drugs. But mass incarceration really starts right after the Reconstruction era ends. So when the triangular slave trade, which is really looking at the slave trade from Africa to the Caribbean to the U.S., um, is ended in 1865, we're taught in our school system that slavery in this nation was abolished. But the 13th Amendment actually tells us that slavery was abolished except as a punishment for a crime. And so right when Reconstruction ends in 1877, you have the emergence of this massive number of black people who are being incarcerated from anything for vagrancy laws, which was a law that said that a black person could be incarcerated if they could not prove they were employed. Or you had things like apprenticeship laws, which says that black children who were born to unfit parents, notice how ambiguous that is, or who were deemed orphans, girls would be legally inscribed and given to their former slave owners until the age of 18, boys until the age of 21. And so you had this massive number of black bodies who are being incarcerated and criminalized, and that leads to the evolution of a new system called convict leasing, which allows these black people to be leased out because of the loophole in the 13th Amendment, which says that slavery is illegal except as a punishment for a crime. They're leased out to corporations and to former plantation owners, and they're doing slave labor for no pay. And this system exists in our nation until 1921. And one of the ways we need to understand this as um, the evolution of mass incarceration is because this was a Southern strategy to resuscitate, resuscitate a deflated Southern economy after slavery was abolished. And so this became this massive money-making venture um, that sustained the South as it tried to bounce back from actually having slavery, uh, the triangular slave trade abolished in our nation. So, I mean, it's a huge issue. There's historical problems, but even, even there's some current things where this impacts current families. Well, we've seen since 1980. 1980 is the first year that we saw that we were literally running out of space within our state and federal facilities to incarcerate people. And so at that moment, we had a chance to choose to consider the validity of things like mandatory minimum or look at sentencing reform or diversion programs. But instead of doing those things, we elected to keep incarcerating people at the same rate, even though it meant that we were going to have no more space within our state and federal facilities. And so we outsourced the responsibility of building prisons to private, for-profit institutions. Private prisons have become this huge phenomenon within our system and a very staple of our system um, about 12% of the nation's population is incarcerated within private prisons, um, but disproportionately, people who are arrested for immigration offenses are housed within private prisons. And private prisons are not this fixture of our criminal justice system. They're actually a relatively new innovation. They don't come on the scene until 1984. 
When a private prison comes into a community, which is usually a sparsely populated rural community where the unjust, injustice that happens is out of sight and out of mind, um, they come in with the bed minimum requirement written into the contract. And the contracts exist for 10 years. And those bed minimums range from 100% occupancy to 70% occupancy. So. Yes, there are some private prisons, three in Arizona, that say every single night 100% of the facility must be filled. And if it's not, the private prison can actually sue the community that it's going into for being in violation of contract. And oftentimes they, they say that they are actually more fiscally responsible, but they are able to be more fiscally responsible because they're cut corners and make people uh, less safe. And so when we talk about our criminal justice system today, one of the things we need to know on the broad overview is that uh, right now women are the fastest growing populace within our nation's prisons, jails, and detention centers. Um, and the number of women in prison has actually grown at a rate of 50% higher than men since 1980. Um, which is really surprising considering the way that we have this conversation. Um, when we talk about women in prison, one of the things that we should know is a third of the women who are actually in prison have actually been um, survivors of sexual assault. Mm. Um, another thing that we should know is that 80% of incarcerated women in our nation are actually mothers. And because of that, um, we have a reality where right now one in 14 children have at least one incarcerated parent or have had a parent who have been incarcerated. And that number is only exacerbated by race and poverty. So one in eight poor children and one in nine black children. And so when we see this, we start to see that um, incarceration has cost to families, but it also has a fiscal cost. Um, the state of California did a study last year and they have the highest rate of cost per person who's incarcerated. And they found that it costs more to incarcerate a person in the state of California than it would to pay tuition at Harvard for a year. And so we see the fiscal uh, irresponsibility, but also the dehumanizing impact of things like solitary confinement, where 90,000 people every day are sentenced to uh, solitary confinement, which means that they're locked in a jail cell for 23 of the 24 hours of the day in utter darkness with no access to sunlight or human contact. Uh, the Geneva Convention has actually said that solitary confinement should more accurately be uh, defined as torture instead mm -hmm. of incarceration. And so these are some things that we really need to sit with within our nation's system. And lastly, I'll leave us with the fact that we are the only country in the world who continues to sentence juveniles to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The UN has, again, condemned us for this practice, but we continue to persist in it. There, there is the, the, the kind of whole public discourse around, you know, safety and law and order, but I, I would like to, I'd like for you to go there and like, what does the Bible have to say about this? And what, what, and uniquely as a Christ follower, uh, why are we, why should we be concerned about this? This conversation for Christians starts in Matthew 25, where Jesus explicitly tells us that we're supposed to be present behind uh, 
prison walls and that we are supposed to be visiting the prisoner. And Jesus cares so much and so emphatically about this that he says when we visit the prisoner, we're just not visiting them, but we're actually spending time with Christ himself. Yeah. That's where the conversation starts for Christians, but we also see it reinforced in Hebrews 13.3 that says that we're supposed to remember the incarcerated as if we were incarcerated alongside with of them. And then I also believe that when we understand that the book of Colossians, we only have the book of Colossians because while Paul was incarcerated, one of his disciples came and faithfully visited him while he was in prison and he described to him the situation that was going on in Colossae where there was this fusion, the syncretism of what was going on, orthodoxy and what people were teaching in the world. And they were starting to meld the two in a way that were leading people away from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he described the situation to Paul and Paul has to pastor the church back to faithfulness from behind prison walls. Mm -hmm. And so it just it's a reinforcement of how intentional and consistent we have to be as the body of Christ about being engaged in this. And I'll give you one more that's less less discussed. Um, in uh, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, it says that we're supposed to speak up for those who do not have the opportunity to speak up for themselves to make sure that they're judged fairly. But right now, within our system, we are taking the democratic voice away from those who have been impacted by the system, who know most acutely how the system needs to be reformed and refined. And so we, through being present behind bars, actually get a chance to see that and go out and be a mouthpiece for people who have been stripped of their voice through a democratic system. This topic gets very complex um, because of a number of kind of factors, and I've heard you kind of speak into those. Can you address some of those factors that, do, that really does make this uh, kind of a complex topic, even to have, have discourse, even talk about um, around a table like this? When we talk about the need for systemic institutional reform, I think people can hear that as being anti-police, and I think that that's not the answer either. Um, I don't think when people are calling for a systemic judicial reform, we're being anti-police, but we are saying that we have to take seriously the fact that there are cops who are doing their job in great, impeccable, respectful ways, and there are cops who abuse their power. And to be able to acknowledge both is to actually live in the tension of the system that we actually are in right now. And we also need to way, understand the way in which a lot of the problems in the system are systemic in nature. They're institutionally written into legislation in ways that actually put officers in very difficult situations. To give you an example, um, one of the ways we see some of the racial disparities we see in our system is the historic disparities in sentencing uh, severity between crack and powder cocaine. Okay. So for the exact same amount of crack and powder cocaine, the person who was caught with crack would get a hundred times more severe sentence than the person who was caught with powder cocaine. Um, crack is a lower priced drug that's disproportionately used by black and brown people, where powder is a higher priced drug that's disproportionately used by Caucasians. That's not law enforcement's fault. That's actually a legislative failure. So in some ways, I mean, the biggest difference between, let's say I was doing it and you were doing it, the yep. biggest difference would be the fact that I'm white and that you're black. That's what most people would argue. <laughs> <laughs> There's also kind of the, I think we got to talk about this a little bit before we got on camera here, the view that we actually have of the, the incarcerated or the yeah. formerly incarcerated. You know, when we think about this from a distinctively Christian perspective, mm -hmm. 
If anyone should understand the flaws of meritocracy, it should be Christians. Okay, because, stop a little bit. So the flaws of meritocracy, mm-hmm. what does that mean? So meritocracy is the belief that you get what you deserve. Okay. Yeah, and what you earn, you earn what you get. And if anybody should understand why this problematic is Christians, because if we got what we deserved, we would be eternally separated from our Lord and Savior and our, our Creator. And Scripture is very explicit about the fact that Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. Not once we got our act together and we cleaned up our lives, but while we were yet sinners. And so for me, this conversation is really a conversation about identity because we know that we're only a part of the family of God because of the grace of God. And if that grace was extended, that grace that was first extended to us was meant to hallmark our lives and it should inform our response to other people who stand in the need of grace today. And when we forsake that grace towards others, then I think we also simultaneously forsake our birthright as Christians because we forget that grace is why we are part of the family of God and that grace should be extended to other people. That doesn't mean that we become soft on crime. That doesn't mean that people aren't held accountable for what they do. But it does mean that as Christians, we never define a person for the rest of their lives by the worst thing they've ever done. But at the end of the day, when you actually look at the statistical breakdown, there are many Christians who actually go and support the death penalty. And at the end of the day, the death penalty says that there are certain people who are beyond redemption. There is certain people that there is nothing that we can do to redeem, that there are certain things that are beyond our Savior continuing to love and pursue us. And so I think we need to take this conversation back to the biblical text, and we need to be people who are informed by the living word and how we're supposed to distinctively respond in the midst of our broken system. And so whatever policy decisions we choose to vote for, ought to be informed by the fact that we see these people as people who are made in the image of God and brothers and sisters, potentially brothers and sisters in Christ, too. And people who are capable of redemption, just like you and me. One of the things we're really excited about at Community Christian is um, a new initiative of ours called Community Freedom. And so we have the opportunity to actually plant brand new churches in prisons. We're excited about that opportunity, but also then the opportunity not only to build community with them in the prisons, but then once they come out, to help them find a place of belonging, uh, a place where they can live, and also meaningful work. And we know that's going to be probably even the greater challenge. With that in mind, too, and all that you've seen in your expertise, just give us a challenge, as a, both as indiv- the individuals that are listening here, but as a whole church. How would you challenge us? For congregations, I'd say the, the key is that we're not all called to the same thing, but we're all called to something. Every church and every individual believer has a role to play. Um, And so I say for congregations, there are four things that we should be at least involved in one of these four ways. Um, First is the work of prevention. Second is ministering to the incarcerated. Third is ministering and walking alongside of families who have incarcerated loved ones. And fourth is in the work of reentry. All right, let's start with prevention. What is it that you can do to start to interrupt the system? Maybe for you, it looks like you volunteering at your local school, uh, particularly an elementary school, where students are behind reading and math grades in first and second grade Mm -hmm. because there is a they use projections of students who are behind reading and math grades in third grade to know how many prisons they'll need to build. 
what would it look like for you to step in and actually use your time to actually mentor, train, and uh, tutor students to help them get on grade level? Or you can get involved in the foster care system. Um, one of the things that I learned when I was writing the book is 70% of this children, 70% of people in prison in California come out of the foster care system, and that's a number that stays pretty consistent throughout the nation. And so for us a community, I mean, through our Community 412 ministry, yep. which, I mean, there's lots of mentoring opportunities, there's other opportunities to get engaged in the local schools. I mean, that would be a way to get involved in that first one called prevention. Yep. What's, the, what's the second one? The second one is uh, ministry to the incarcerated. Um, so living into Matthew 25, going to visit the prisoner, contacting the chaplain at your local prison or jail and say, how can we support the ministry that you're doing? What aid do you need? How can we come alongside of you? With our new Community Freedom Initiative, I mean, there's lots of volunteer opportunities and people can do that and get proximate, get close and make a difference. Okay, number three. Yeah, uh, walking alongside uh, families with incarcerated loved ones. Uh, that can look anything, like anything from uh, providing rides for families who don't have a car to go visit their loved one. Um, being willing for families who are too impoverished to do so to put money on the books so incarcerated people can stay in contact with their family. Um, it can look like babysitting if uh, a significant other is not ready to take their little children to see their significant other behind bars. Um, it can look like providing meals for families or more importantly, inviting families over into your house to have a meal, to help them know that they don't have to carry this burden alone. All right, and then the fourth one? The fourth one, um, returning citizens. Um, so one of the things you'll commonly hear um, with people who've done this work or returning citizens, they'll say the church was very eager to come and and visit me while I was in prison and to help me come to know Jesus, but I didn't feel like people were really vested in my discipleship. They wanted a conversion, but they weren't committed to my discipleship and walking alongside of me after I gave my life to Christ. Mm. And one of my pastor friends here in the city says, he's formerly incarcerated, he said, at the end of the day, if when I'm released from prison, if you're not willing to create space for me at your dinner table, it all falls down on some level. And so that's a real prophetic challenge challenge to us as the body. Are we really willing to create space at our dinner table, at our most intimate gatherings for returning citizens? I think that's a particularly important challenge for us because, okay, we're on the front end of this initiative of community freedom and we're always gung-ho about planting churches. But the real, our metal will really be tested, like, as, as these formerly incarcerated are out, yeah, how do we help them assimilate into our, into our own church community, into our own small groups in our own life, and how do we help them also, you know, find jobs and homes and all those kinds of things. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a good work. I think the other work that we can be doing is preparatory work. Um, it's the work that helps us readjust the way that we think about incarcerated people so that when they are released, that we're ready to receive them in a way where they don't feel like pet projects, but they feel like they're truly part of our community and that we've done the destigmatizing work that when they come, we're ready to walk alongside of them. We understand the social challenges that they're gonna have in reintegrating into society. I mean, this has been really, really good. Um, I want to say thank you so much for um, what you're doing mm -hmm. and the challenge that you've given to us, which I think is much needed. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you could finish up, could you just say a word of prayer for, for us as a church? Yes. Um, God, I'd just like to thank you for these brothers and sisters who are 
earnestly seeking after you and the direction that your spirit is leading. I like to pray and ask that you really light a fire in our souls to help us to understand the urgency of the moment that we're in and the desperate need that uh, men and women who are coming out of the system have for brothers and sisters who are willing to walk alongside of them, to advocate for them, to believe in them, to remind them that they have a missional purpose that you have a missional purpose for their life while they're incarcerated and once they re-enter into society. Uh, I like to pray and ask that you give them clarity around what all of this means as they uh, launch into these new initiatives and that you continue to help them to have the humble posture and inviting people from the outside to help speak in and form and shape the mission and the vision that you've called them to. In your name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thank you.